Hello, everybody. Welcome to slightly impromptu Colin. I um, understand that given the late night nature of this Colin, you might be awestruck that I decided to initiate one at this time. It might just completely bedazzle you that I would feel moved to do a call-in at 10.30 p.m. But you know what? Life has its surprises, and that also applies to the call-in app. Um, So uh, while on the one hand, I do think probably that having call-in shows at a particular time that's sort of preset might be better just logistically – I have to say that it's kind of my nature to do things on a whim, and when I have a thought that I think could be conducive to Colin, I tend to just say, you know what, F it, let's have one. Although that being said, um, tomorrow's the second installment of what's going to be a regular weekly uh, show with uh, Richard Hanania, uh, as you might have known if you listened to our one last Friday, but it's going to be now on Thursdays at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. So that's going to be the regular time unless you know something comes up on any given week. But you can uh, note that on your schedule so you can spend all week looking forward to it. Anyway, so um, you might have noticed that there appears to be a spelling error in the headline of this call-in room. And I just want to say one thing for the record. I will admit that when I originally wrote out Wither the Nazis, I misspelled Wither. I forgot the H. And so I went back and thought about correcting it. But then I noticed that there's a really helpful double entendre, actually, in that spelling error. It was like a gift from God that I happened to misspell this word because – it sort of serves two purposes, serves dual purposes, right? Whether the Nazis is sort of a term that one might might wistfully ask about the presence of Nazis that maybe had once been abundant in their presence, um, but now have mysteriously uh, dissipated. And also whether, so without the age, Suggests that the Nazis who uh, who may or may not have existed are in fact withering away, meaning they're being shriveled into non-existence. And so, even though that might not be the cleanest double entendre of all time, I felt like I should just leave it because it sort of relates to what I'm going to discuss, which derives m- largely from my Substack from a few days ago, which I hope you may have read. Um, and also uh, going to draw on a post that's a follow-up that I'm, I'm writing right now. But, but before I get into that, I do want to just make a brief comment about something that I happened to see within the past hour that um, obviously I wasn't planning on talking about, but it did spur a few thoughts for me, which is that you know, if you've been on Twitter, uh, you may have seen this clip going around that's actually very amazing of uh, George W. Bush delivering some sort of speech at what I guess is his institute. Is that his uh, 
presidential library in Texas, I would guess so, the George W. Bush Institute. Um, and he's delivering these remarks on foreign policy. And as he's doing so, I think he um, gives us the gift of the most iconic, quote-unquote, Bushism that he probably has ever uttered, and he waited 13 years after leaving office to do it. Um, I don't know if uh, everybody here is old enough to recall, but uh, I certainly recall from my adolescence this whole obsession, at least, especially amongst like liberal book publishers and you know the beginnings of meme uh, makers in the 2000s. Uh, they were constantly obsessed with pointing out George W. Bush's quote-unquote Bush-isms, meaning these seeming uh, verbal miscues or slips of the tongue or quote-unquote gaffes that uh, indicated that Bush really didn't have a way with words or that he was constantly screwing up in his enunciation of words. And it is true that Bush would somewhat commonly screw up words. But I always, although at the time, just because I was so anti bush as a function of meeting against Iraq, as I sort of matured somewhat, I came to realize that that whole fixation with Bushisms and his gaffes and everything was extremely superficial and sort of just misdirection, really, from what ought to have been the focus of any criticism of Bush, which, you know, obviously centered around Iraq, but also on a variety of different things. And this like over-personalization of the presidency, whether pro or con, I think is actually somewhat of a kind of harmful or distorting dynamic unto itself. Like everybody is supposed to get so incredibly invested in the personality of the president. You saw this region APEC with Trump, obviously, um, where – Really, the number one issue, it seemed, that American politics hinged upon was Trump's just persona, his manner of speaking and tweeting and, and um, how he just presented himself. Um, and you know, even to this day, I think a lot of people are extremely confused about what the Trump administration actually did with respect to Russia on a policy level which is they exceeded the hawkishness or the uh, aggressiveness that the Obama administration um, ushered in. But because of the total obsession with constantly replaying over and over again, you have a handful of Trump kind of statements or tweets where he blurts out something vaguely that could be portrayed as, you know, I don't know, sympathetic to Putin, although even that was overstated. But the point being, this fixation on his rhetoric, rhetoric uh, him as a rhetorician, or his, uh, whether you are turned off by his persona or you find it refreshing, that itself was a distortion, so whether pro or con. I mean, the pro and con side have different sort of features, and I'm not necessarily equating them in every sense, but just that whole sort of impulse, I think, is really um, a mistaken direction in which to kind of funnel a political energy. Um, and so I think the, in hindsight, I sort of came to more and more appreciate how that was probably also similar – a similar thing that happened with Bush, um, because there was always this, you know, liberal trope of how Bush was stupid or whatnot. And although he obviously uh, did occasionally fumble over his words, 
Um, I mean, it wasn't so much that you th- would just think he's a total ignoramus who can't string together a thought. I mean, he seems just have like, I don't know, just standard generic intelligence. Um, and so that thing, that whole, I think, uh, theme was kind of ridiculous. Um, uh, but nonetheless, tonight, or I don't know, I guess it was tonight when the speech was delivered, the clip came out just now anyway um he uh provides us gra- uh, graciously with the best bushism yet and uh, says quote the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and br- brutal invasion of iraq i mean ukraine <laughs> um so um uh you know is that a confession or was it just a pure slip up? I don't know, but whatever the case may be, I think, you know, reminding people of the precedent of Iraq is actually very instructive right now because we see so much hyperbole around the brutality and the cravenness and like the murderous rampage of Russia in Ukraine. And I don't deny that there's been brutality, obviously. Um, seems like at least aspects of that alleged brutality have been corroborated. Um, and, you know, there's going to be brutality sort of inherent to launching an, an aggressive war, which Russia did when it launched the war in February. Uh, that being said, you know, it's often been hard to take seriously these uh, proclamations of such righteous outrage from uh, pundits and politicians um, who are, you know, uh, fulminating as though the U.S. had not engaged in what is certainly brutality of, at the very least, a comparable magnitude and possibly worse, even if we're just talking about Iraq. Um, I mean, it used to be common knowledge what Fallujah consisted of. I mean, the Battle of Fallujah in 2005, um, when um, hundreds of Iraqi civilians were killed. And, um, you know, maybe there was some light criticism here and there about the wisdom of U.S. military strategy in Fallujah, but it wasn't necessarily extrapolated into this a grand sort of existential indictment of who the U.S. is as a country. I mean, maybe maybe it ought to have been, right? Uh, but it really wasn't, by and large. Um, and yet, you know, every time one of these politicians today sees a uh, little snippet on social media of something bad happening in Russia, or happening in Ukraine, rather, um, they kind of automatically extrapolate it into this kind of searing and uh, f- extremely far-reaching indictment of, kind of the very essence of the Russian state. And again, I'm not even necessarily disputing that Russia may deserve some of those criticisms, although I, it seems like to me that they tend to be uh, kind of over-dramatized in the U.S., but nonetheless, there, um, some criticisms are warranted. Uh, but, you know, when that – it would never be even be enter- entertained to apply similar criticisms to the U.S., in relation to at least comparable conduct, 
then, yeah, I mean, even though you're going to be accused of, quote unquote, whataboutism for making this point, it does actually say something about the consistency of standards and whether these kind of heavily moralizing denunciations ought to be taken as credible. Um, so for Bush to now come out and provide us with a reminder uh, of the precedent of Iraq, I think is useful in that sense and maybe sort of militating against some of this sort of exculpatory rhetoric that so many politicians now are indulging in with respect to Ukraine that conveniently sort of absolves the uh, U.S. of any kind of culpability for anything that happened before uh, February of this year. But there's also another level on which I think it's actually instructive that I wouldn't think is going to be pointed out by almost anyone. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to somebody having a contrary perspective than me on, and maybe even um, rejecting that what I'm about to say here is accurate. But, you know, Bush and the Bush administration and this constellation of, you know, neoconservatives that were in and uh, out of the administration in the early 2000s that kind of laid the intellectual groundwork, if you want to call it intellectual, for invading Iraq. Um, first of all, most of them are still around uh, and exerting influence, and many have even reached greater heights of influence, maybe not within their direct uh, influence on government officials, but you know, it's wider cultural or political influence, um, and uh, so that's the one thing as to the neocons. I mean, the neocons have rode the wave, as I'm sure people are aware, of the Trump era, which I include in the as the current era, given that you know Biden probably is not a significant enough figure in his own right to really coin an era after, um, uh, but. You know, the, the, the people who really brought to bear the Bush foreign policy in the rationales that they concocted for it, they're still around and they're still setting a lot of the tenor for how people interpret what's going on in Ukraine it's, and also U.S. policy with respect to Ukraine. But aside from the little clique of neocons, which are their own thing, and people sort of, I think, over-apply the term neocon at times, because it can sometimes be um, tempting to just assume that everybody who sounds like a neocon must ipso facto themselves be an ideological neocon, when really the success of the whole neocon tendency lies in its ability to infiltrate itself into a whole variety of other uh, ideological sort of uh, systems, and to uh, ingratiate itself into differing political coalitions, which is why it's sort of on the rise in the Democratic Party coalition today, and it had been more so in the Republican Party, obviously, in the past, especially under Bush. Um, but aside from the influence, influence of the neocons, even if you just examine the rhetoric that was invoked by Bush himself and his administration's officials and by uh, Republicans and Democrats back during that period of when the war was launched, you'll find that a lot of the rationale is very strikingly similar and sometimes almost seems verbatim in its similarity to the rhetoric and logic that's being 
invoked today to justify the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. And so what, what do I mean by that? Like, can I give an example? Well, yeah, I can give an example, because if there's any sort of paradigmatic example of the encapsulation of the Bush doctrine, um, you know, the, the doctrine that really elucidated what Bush's whole foreign policy was about, or at least was the public-facing rationale for what Bush's foreign policy was all about, it was the uh, second inaugural address that he delivered in 2000, January 2005, um, beginning his second term. And it's really a worth rereading if you have forgotten, because the uh, grandiosity and the, even, you might say, the pomposity or even arrogance of the uh, highfalutin uh, rhetoric is really something. Um, he actually said, quote, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. Wow, I mean, that's sort of an um, ambitious goal, wouldn't you think? End tyranny in the entire world. Uh, and that was sort of the context in which he situated the Iraq War. It was just one of many fronts on which the U.S. was fighting to end tyranny in the entire world. Um, and so you might think that you know, today, that whole mode of rhetoric and that whole uh, philosophical, if you want to call it that premise, has been discarded. Right? I mean, Bush has somewhat fallen out of favor or he was usurped in his brand of politics, uh, in particular foreign policy, was usurped by Trump in 2016 when Trump obviously won the primaries, the Republican primaries, in part by uh, castigating Bush, uh, you know, and using Jeb Bush as a foil. Uh, you might think that because Bush has been out of office for some time and the historical uh, referendum or judgment on the Iraq war has been increasingly negative, and uh, even many Republicans obviously now have, if not repudiated it, um, acknowledged that it was in many ways misbegotten. Even uh, John McCain made a, a confession of, of sorts uh, to that effect on his uh, deathbed, um, meaning about Iraq, which would then make you think that, okay, so this whole sort of uh, worldview associated with Bush, the freedom agenda, that's what it was called, the freedom agenda, this idea that the U.S. has to go around the world promoting democracy, uh, whether at the barrel of a gun or using its, some other mechanism. That, um, that must have fallen by the wayside as well because look how much disrepute Bush is in apparently. Well, you'd be totally wrong about that. You'd be totally wrong because although Bush himself might not be held in as high regard – Although I think probably he's more popular now if you add just poll people than he was at the end of his tenure in office. Um, but whatever his current popularity or lack thereof, the idea that the core premises underlying the, this freedom agenda could see that he vigorously promoted and that was uh, constantly cited – as a rationale for 
the Iraq War, particularly as the weapons of mass destruction rationale was no longer tenable after a certain time. Um, that really has not far from been discarded or repudiated. It's really just uh, transmuted itself into different variations today and is probably more popular than ever. I mean, if you go and just look at the sort of mainline rhetoric that Republicans and Democrats use to justify their support for the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. And by the way, say, by the way I say U.S. intervention because if you're orchestrating an enormous proxy war, uh, which the U.S. is, um, and it's doing so not just on its own behalf, but on behalf of the other uh, participating countries, which are obviously contributing a far lesser share of the armaments that are flowing into Ukraine. But, you know, the U.S. is the, um, the, the, the facilitator. So that's why I call it a U.S. intervention, uh, even if at least publicly we don't, we can't say yet that there's been a direct, quote-unquote, uh, intervention. Although I think if, the, if uh, U.S. officials are going out and bragging that they've been integral in launching combat operations to kill Russian generals and sink Russian warships, I mean, there's an argument to, me, to be made that that actually is a direct intervention, but we don't have to get into the semantics of that. Uh, just, just to say that when you look at the public-facing rationale, uh, of how politicians talk about this Ukraine intervention, it's, it's strikingly similar to this whole freedom agenda philosophy that supposedly is associated with the um, ostracized and uh, loathed Bush. So, so just to give you uh, one example, uh, Biden, when he was in Warsaw, uh, Poland at the end of March, giving the speech that I've uh, referenced many times on Colin and elsewhere, uh, because at the end, obviously, he called for regime change in Russia and what was, you know, then quickly sort of uh, rationalized as not a change in U.S. policy or something, which is kind of a nonsense um, qualifier. But uh, anyway, if you actually look at the rest of the speech... <laughs> Um, you know, he'll talk about how you know the U.S. is now uh, seeing to it that it's the going to be the number one ally of Ukraine as it wages this uh, fight, quote, on the front lines in the perennial struggle for democracy and freedom. And so, what is the main goal behind U.S. policy right now, vis-a-vis Ukraine? Well, according to Biden. According to Biden, it's a very similar logic as the democracy promotion logic that was espoused by Bush. You know, and this shouldn't be all that surprising that there's some similarities in the foreign policy predilections of George W. Bush and Biden, considering that Biden you know, was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate when the Iraq invasion happened and he supported it and was actually a key figure along with Hillary Clinton in giving a bipartisan credence to the invasion. Um, so that's not surprising in that sense. But... Uh, you know, for example, also when Biden a few uh, was it two weeks ago or so went down to Alabama to the Lockheed Martin facility where they're uh, manufacturing these javelin missiles and such, um, he said that all Americans should be proud that these weapons were being manufactured in the U.S. because he they should regard the manufacturer and 
distribution of these weapons as, quote, a direct investment in defending freedom and democracy itself. And he also will just go around sort of casting the Ukraine war. And he's not alone in this, but, you know, he's the president, so he's kind of reflecting, I guess, just what the consensus view is on this stuff. He's always casting the Ukraine war as this, you know, titanic um, showdown of democracy versus tyranny. And uh, playing up the U.S. role and seeing to it that democracy wins because, you know, similar to as Bush said, you know, the world is going to be safer for the U.S. if it does everything in its power to promote democracy. Now, maybe that wouldn't include necessarily a uh, sudden preemptive invasion of uh, on an order of the Iraq invasion at this point. Um, I don't think that would be politically uh, tenable. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, the, 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 the basic logic there has held. And I don't think many people are going to point that out at all. Um, and, you know, it is true, I guess, that a lot of this rhetoric is just sheer platitude. Um, and so, you know, it, Bush and Biden wouldn't be the first presidents to have overused concepts like, you know, freedom and democracy to justify whatever it is they want to do on a foreign policy level. Um, but you know, Bush was very closely associated with this whole idea of democracy promotion um, as a kind of key tenet of his foreign policy approach. And uh, that's, that's really alive and well, at least in its sort of core assumptions. Um, you know, before the inv- invasion of Ukraine happened, just two months prior, Biden had this peculiar uh, summit where uh, it was called the Summit for Democracy and uh, where he convened different world leaders to get together and discuss, quote, democracy. And in tandem with that, he announced something called the Presidential Initiative for Democratic Renewal, which sounds so wonderful. sounds very benign. And uh, part of the reason for the launching of this initiative was to, quote, and this is in the official sort of document that accompanied its publicization, is to uh, support the U.S. government's significant ongoing work to bolster democracy globally. So according to Biden, the U.S. is in the middle of significant ongoing work to, quote, bolster democracy across the entire globe. You know, and some of these uh, kind of uh, initiatives within this campaign include, you know, quote unquote, fighting corruption and doing a lot of this um, civil society type stuff that, you know, USAID has been, AID has been known for for uh, quite some time. And, you know, Biden just basically wants to enhance all that. And, you know, don't call it nation building, though, because that's associated with George W. Bush. So if you're subsidizing Ukraine's military and you have people calling for a new kind of Marshall plan to be introduced in Ukraine whenever the war may end, although it may never end at this rate. Um, or uh, if you're, if you want to revive even just what was going on in Ukraine post 2014, which I recently learned, and maybe I wasn't in the weeds enough to have been aware of this, but I recently learned that USAID, you know, this governmental organization that uh, gets involved all over the world in so-called aiding civil society on the basis of supporting democratic institutions or whatever, 
Um, they were so intimately involved in Ukraine post-2014 that you can actually go look up a uh, parking plan that USAID produced in 2016 where they commissioned a study to tell uh, you know, the municipal authorities in uh, Kiev how they can run their parking system. So, you know, on the one hand, nation building is seen as this um, outmoded concept that was really overdone with Bush, and we've learned our lessons, and we know that that's no longer prudent. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, what is the policy in Ukraine now, if not a form of nation building? Maybe a key facet of the contemporary quote nation is the military, right? So even prior to the invasion, the U.S. was subsidizing the Ukrainian uh, military. I mean, it was training it. It was uh, fostering this so-called inter- interoperability between the Ukrainian military and the U.S. military. It was giving it this sort of precursor NATO status so that it would be more fully aligned with the U.S. Uh, command and on and on and on. Um, and you know, it was even involved, again, to the extent that it was – deciphering like traffic code for local government officials in Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, it really is nation building and it really is democracy promotion. Uh, but you won't really see it pointed out in those terms because even though lots of people, again, this is just a first blush thing that I happened to see on Twitter today, uh, you know, before, shortly before doing this, even though a lot of people are going to be, you know, rightly uh, contemptuous of Bush for, coming up with this gaffe and they'll you know say that it's you know, this uh, Freudian slip or whatever. Many of those same people then turn around and then just ignore or if maybe not even appreciate uh, that Biden is really drawing on much the same logic as Bush in justifying this current U.S. intervention. Um, people really don't even think of the this proxy war as uh, like even a debatable proposition or they don't even think of it really as a military intervention that's been undertaken by the U.S. So they don't even – you couldn't even uh, – it, it's difficult to imagine even getting them somehow to think of it in similar terms as the Iraq war, at least in the sense of prompting debate around it or prompting kind of skeptical consideration of – U.S. claims as to why it's engaging in this policy. I mean, they, they think that it just kind of exists separate and apart from all that preceded it, including the, in the tenure of Bush, who they, you know, have rejected as a bad <laughs> president. And, yeah, I mean, obviously on a foreign policy level, it was an unmitigated disaster. Um, but th- 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 there's a missing uh, presence of mind or there's a missing – self-awareness as to the current ramifications of this latest indication of at least a variation of the freedom agenda, quote-unquote, that was invoked so relentlessly by Bush and his compadres. And I'll just give you an example of how it's being invoked today. There was an op-ed at the Washington Post that was one of these you know, gloriously uh, bipartisan op-eds. So, of course, it was Liz Cheney and a Democrat, Jake Auchincloss uh, from Massachusetts, and they're basically putting together an op-ed about why it's such a huge imperative for the U.S. to be 
so heavily involved in funding the Ukrainian uh, war effort and sending, obviously, endless supplies of weapons and with the latest being this $40 billion package that's going to be probably finalized this week. And Cheney and Auchinloss write on a bipartisan basis, quote, the outcome in Ukraine will reverberate across the world. In defending Ukraine's democracy, we stand up for our own. In combating tyranny overseas, we strengthen our freedom at home. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's a chain, literally a Cheney. But it's really hard to see what is different about that whole kind of mode of rhetoric and what was ubiquitous under the Bush administration. It's pretty much the same. It's just slightly slight variations to account for this whole um, surge in concern around so-called, you know, authoritarian – right-wing governments that have proliferated with Putin being the most kind of egregious example in the minds of these people. Um, it's a base, but other than that, it's just sort of like a carbon copy of what was popularized under Bush. And uh, you'll seldom ever see it mentioned because what, although, again, it was a Cheney, so maybe it's a bit too on the nose as a contemporary example. But that whole, that op-ed, that even those quotes I just read, um, that's a 100% in line with the overwhelming bipartisan consensus on this topic. And uh, you'll hear it echoed by uh, Republicans and Democrats constantly. So, um, you know, on the one hand, while uh, Bush um, is a somewhat reviled figure, he, um, he in a way gets the last laugh given the popularity of uh, his, at least variations of his ideas currently. Uh, and to back to the, uh, the headline of this call, and then I'll take some uh, calls if anybody would like. Um, Whither the Nazi, right? So I said that I mentioned the double entendre earlier, which is not the neatest double entendre that's ever been invented, but it's one that I happened upon because I misspelled the word wither initially. Um, so, <laughs> when I say whether the Nazis, it, it, it is prompted by this piece that I wrote uh, a few days ago where basically what I did at least on a reporting level is do something that I thought was fairly straightforward you, or at least you would assume would be very straight, straightforward but most people would never even have it occur to them to do in the media because they are so sort of, I don't know, just uh, myopic and, and uh, tethered to whatever the dominant – prevailing narrative is but uh because i have a memory and because i can remember at least flashes of what happened during the period of 2016 to 2020 um i can vividly recall that whenever one of these waves of media fixation would arrive on the supposed uh, scourge of resurgent neo-nazism in the u.s whether it was around Charlottesville, whether it was around whatever other event happened to explode given the uh, way that the media cycles happened under Trump, Uh, you could almost, you could bet your bottom dollar that many of the claims in any given article that you'd come across 
about how this alarming trend in neo-Nazism or other kinds of right-wing racial extremism like uh, white nationalism or whatever, you would always get a a claim in these articles that was about this supposedly research and trend that was sourced to one of two organizations, the Southern Poverty Law Center or the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Because both of those organizations, which are very well-resourced, I mean, particularly the ADL, which uh, extracts all kinds of sort of ass-covering donations from people who you know want to uh, you know cover their asses um, in a PR sense, especially if you know they get in trouble with something related to uh, Jewish issues. I guess um, these wealth-resource organizations devoted tons of energy to ferreting out every last potential sign of resurgent right-wing extremism in these ways in these um in this sense particularly as it related to the to neo-nazism and white nationalism and all the rest and obviously this reached a fever pitch during the charlottesville episode where we were told that because this rally happened by you know these crazies in uh, Charlottesville and he had that incident where someone was killed by, by a participant in the rally who was purported to be a Nazi. This meant that neo-Nazism was not just something that you'd occasionally happen across in the wild and it would be sort of a freakish occurrence, but that it was becoming a genuinely formidable political force. That was basically the, the thrust of what was imparted to the American public during that period. And of course, it was attributed to Trump because Trump was accused of either tacitly or directly abetting the rise of neo-Nazis and related extremist groups because that somehow would benefit him politically. Um, I don't know that it was ever really spelled out how Trump figured that he would benefit in American politics by being associated with neo-Nazis. Um, probably would be a net disadvantage, I would guess. Um, but nonetheless, that was basically the theory. And again, the, the prevalence of this theory, the prevalence of the hysteria, and yeah, I do, would, would call it hysteria for the most part, although you can always find extremists who do exist. And you know, we had a mass shooting on sun, uh, Saturday perpetu- perpetrated by a guy who specifically cited um, white supremacy and fascism and uh, even neo-Nazism as his motivating beliefs. So, you know, obviously that exists. Um, but this idea that it was this genuinely widespread political force um, that had the ear of the president and that the president was directly sort of uh, commanding, um, that I think was largely a kind of concoction of the sort of the uh, exigencies of the hysterical moment. And the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center were central to that. And so, um, you know, during that time, there was always a Nazi behind it, hiding behind every bush, right? Or as I put it in the Substack article, like every time a Nazi sneezed, every time someone who they could purport to be a neo-Nazi sneezed, they would, you know, declare a national emergency, 
they were always on hair trigger alert for anything having to do with this supposedly resurgent neo-Nazi trend. And so therefore, (laughs) when you fast forward to today, uh, something happened that really caught my attention a couple of weeks ago, which is that, you know, I was surfing the web as I tend to do one day, and I, uh, something comes on my radar that strikes me as worth inquiring about with the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League. And what was that thing? Well, I saw a clip posted by a journalist from a rally that took place in downtown Manhattan at the end of April. And at this rally, chanters had assembled, and what they were chanting was Azov, 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 in like a celebratory, affirming manner. I mean, they were chanting very positively (laughs) about Azov. Okay, so that's a rally that took place in the streets of New York couple of weeks ago, where the name was affirmatively chanted of a foreign military regiment that prior to February of 2022, if you look at most, all, any of the popular U.S. media coverage, so I'm not re- relying on anything that Russia or any Russian media has ever said about this group to form this kind of summary. But if you look at everything from Time Magazine to the New York Times to um, the Washington Post to, you know, fill in the blank, it was basically just common practice, standard practice, to refer to the Azov Battalion as overtly neo-Nazi. And they would source the claim that the Azov Battalion was overtly neo-Nazi too, for example, the fact that if they're in their official insignia, they fuse together two uh, symbols that are just unambiguously associated with the Nazi party of Germany, like the historical Nazi party of Germany. Um, on top of that, you know, every time there would be a sl- somewhat more um, detailed investigation into Azov, as was conducted by Time Magazine in 2021. I mean, we're not talking about 2014, okay? I'm talking about calendar year 2021. Time Magazine had its correspondent in Ukraine go to the recruitment center in Kiev of the Azov Battalion, and he reported that at the store, the little shop within the recruitment center, they sell trinkets with the swastika on it. (laughs) I mean, what are we to take from that? It seems to me that if you belong to an organization that tries to recruit members by selling them trinkets with the swastika on it, then it's probably a reasonable inference to (laughs) that they are a neo-Nazi group. Um, but even if you're, you, you don't think that it's a certainty that they're neo-Nazi, right? Because there's, it, it, it may well be the case that not every member of the battalion 
actively subscribes or consciously subscribes to like ideological neo-Nazism. Even if you grant that's possible, and I think it is probably possible, but I don't know for sure. The criteria that these groups like the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center had set out for when they would declare a national emergency around supposedly resurgent neo-Nazism has been overwhelmingly met by the Azov Battalion. Just by, even if you just go by the insignia alone, that will be enough for people to, have, to be running around with their hair on fire if it ever happened with a political faction in the U.S. Even if, they, even if there was just a guy spotted on the street wandering around with a um, swastika or something, or even one of these more, you know, maybe slightly more obscure but still recognizable symbols like the Black Sun, um, th- that would be cause for just this massive meltdown. Um, and so, and actually, if you go look at on the database that the ADL maintains of suppose, what, what they call hate symbols. Um, every symbol that is used by the Azov Battalion from the, you know, including the Black Sun and the um, Wolf Angel, and if, if that's how you pronounce it, um, they're, they're listed on the ADL database as hate symbols. And if you look at the archives even of the Southern Poverty Law Center, they posted, they've posted articles just in the past couple years that refers to the Azov Battalion as neo-Nazi. Um, of course, as well, the U.S. Congress prohibited any provision of arms or training to, neo- to um, Azov Battalion on the grounds that, it was, according to the sponsor of that provision, Rokana, it was a neo-Nazi battalion. Rokana, in 2018, also organized a letter signed by um, 60-plus members of Congress where Azov Battalion was cited as just one of multiple examples of how Ukraine had dangerously lurched into Nazi, what was called government-sponsored Nazi glorification. So you know, even if I, I can't make a firm, conclusive judgment about the ideological beliefs of every single Azov member, I can point to these examples of politicians and journalists in the very recent past calling the Azov Battalion neo-Nazi. And thus, one would think that the two organizations, the two well-resourced advocacy organizations at the tip of the spear and always being on hair-trigger alert to point out when anything under the sun is neo-Nazi, you'd think they might have a thought on the fact that there was a pro-Azov rally in New York City in April where people were chanting Azov, 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 given what's in the public domain about this group. And wouldn't you know it, but the ADL told me that Sorry, we just simply don't have any comment. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, dispatched a communications consultant to assure me that they were going to have some sort of comment. And uh, days, days and days went by, and of course they said nothing. Um, and what does that tell you? Well, I mean, it's not just that it's like hypocritical of these groups. I mean, although I guess it is. 
uh, because you know hypocrisy is this garden variety feature of politics, so it's almost not even that interesting to point out. I think what's much more interesting and necessary to point out is that these kind of almost staggeringly obvious double standards and about faces are all being marshaled in service of ultimately defending and legitimizing a U.S. military operation, a U.S. military intervention. Because I th- a, a central reason why there's such now aversion to simply repeat the same descriptions that were used in some cases just last year to describe this group is because if they were used now, number one, they would be castigated as somehow validating Putin because he's using this denazification justification for the war, um, but also because it would cast in a negative light the U.S. intervention, in a sense, because if we're all be- being told with such fanfare how it's necessary to defend democracy and wage this global battle against authoritarianism by arming Ukraine, and then uh, one of the armed factions of Ukraine that we're all being told to uh, lionize is a battalion that every sort of mainstream outlet just in the past couple of years would have had no compunction about describing as neo-Nazi. Well, then that's sort of a complication for the, the larger uh, narrative. And, uh, you know, can't have that. And so, yeah, I mean, it is obviously, quote-unquote, hypocritical for these advocacy organizations to just have a, totally abandoned their um, claims concern around neo-Nazism. Um, but that's almost not the most important thing. The important thing is how this sort of is all functioning discursively to kind of, I guess maybe to use a cliche, but it's kind of apt here, manufacture consent really around the, uh, this latest U.S. intervention. Um, and yeah, it goes to why there was such um, resistance to simply noting that the shooter in Buffalo was proudly flaunting the Black Sun symbol, which of course is part of the official insignia of the Azov Battalion, um, flouting that symbol on his manifesto. And then there's also a photo of him wearing it on his uh, chest. Um, And, you know, because in 2019, when uh, the New Zealand mosque shooting happened, Everybody from the New York Times down, down, down the line um, pointed out that the perpetrator of that shooting wore a black sun. And they had no reservations about pointing out that the black sun is heavily associated with the uh, neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. That's, the, that's a direct quote, more or less, from the New York Times in 2019. But now we're supposedly to believe that things have so radically changed in approximately three years that the description used by the New York Times then is now negated. And uh, we have to look at uh, the Azov Battalion with tons of nuance and uh, charitability. Now, just ask yourself, when has anybody who could even be faintly accused of espousing neo-Nazism, been treated with 
this kind of deference or, or charitable um, presumption of good faith or um, given the benefit of, of the doubt. I, I, I tend to recollect that on the contrary, people are constantly accused of subscribing to neo-Nazism who really have given no you know, uh, defensible or intelligible reason to think that they are actually neo-Nazis because the term has become so elastic in its application. But, you know, this is sort of, this is much different. This is, we, we have actual examples of the, the uh, official insignia containing neo-Nazi slogan, uh, symbols. Actually, and the founder, if you read this Time article from 2021, the founder of Azov said that he picked those symbols as a derivative of the Nazi party of Germany. Um, you have, even just a few days ago, there was a photo posted on Twitter from this Azov operative. I think he's a soldier. Um, I would assume he's a soldier. He's anyway. He's in the. Um, he was in the steel factory that was recently the, the site of the mass surrender to Russia of the Azov uh, uh, fighters. Uh, but he posted on Twitter this photo of a bizarre <laughs> scene where this uh, Azov fighter is showered in a beam of light coming from a hole in the, in the roof. And it's basically depicted as like Christ in him being bathed with this heavenly light. Um, and, you know, people were, uh, people were um, rejoicing in how moving this image was. And, you know, it didn't take long before other, uh, some other users of Twitter uh, thought to do something sensible, which is just kind of go into the tweet history of this individual, look through other photos he's posted. And they found photos from 2020 of the guy, <coughs> no joke, showing off foodstuffs that had the swastika painted on them, you know, using like some kind of sauce. Um, and also this guy wearing shirt, a shirt, T-shirt that had, uh, you know, 1488 on it, which is this you know, numerical sort of code for people who are, you know, Nazi slash white nationalist. I mean, I'm not going to get into the full explanation of that. Uh, the, the, the point being, I mean, there's, there's a mountain of, mountains of evidence that suggests that it's at the very least – reasonable to continue to characterize just as have been done prior to February this battalion as neo-Nazi and yet there's just a kind of a uh, wall that's been erected around kind of truthful depictions of this group because again it would be potentially inconvenient for the narrative and that's what we all must revere all right uh, that's my monologue uh, going to go down to a couple of callers. Let's go with Lance. Hello, Lance. Michael, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, I just thought of something that I got to either say it or write it down because it's kind of it's like, a, 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 you know, like a new thought, you know what I mean? It's not something that I've got in my monofiling cabinet, but I'll wait on that. I agree with everything you're saying, right? Uh, for instance, the January 6th, quote-unquote, insurrection so here you have the proud boys three percenters and the oath keepers three of the allegedly 
and you know they're 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 belligerent and they're they're well armed and all that stuff. So my my point to the people calling insurrection is, if that's it, we have nothing to worry about. These are some of the people that have more arms per capita, you know, like maxed out at the hundred percent level. Okay, they come to the capital. They're all coordinated. They were flying in on jets, some of them, because of the disenchantment from the bubble, the 2008, the 2000, so that's why they were there. Okay, so these were not poor people that just were ragtag. They had all the organization. They had college education. They had the walkie-talkie, the whole bit. They stormed the Capitol. They wander around. What? They just decided to knock on three doors and let that one cop lead them all astray and didn't decide, well, let's just bang down every door till we find these mother, right? No. They wandered around. They vandalized. They had some fun. They left. So that's obviously absurd, right? Now, malicious. Again, agreeing with what you're saying. I don't remember the last time, if ever, that I've heard about militia member, you know, killed so-and-so, right? I just don't, you know, and I remember watching a hearing where these guys handled themselves brilliantly. They talked about how the fact that it's a hierarchy and if they're a colonel, it's about it's about communication. They were presented by Wackjaw, by Arlen Specter and Diane Feinstein. I'm like, these guys are smart. These guys know what the law's about. And this one I first and I already knew about this, about how sheriffs are elected and how they follow the the rules, you know, about being well regulated. They said every the sheriff knows everybody. He has our information and our phone numbers of everybody in the militia. He knows who we are. And if we ever have to do an action, we inform the sheriff that we got to do this. And so it's like, yes, this is what, you know, regardless of your politics, this is how it's supposed to be run. This is what citizen militias are all about. Now, the flip side of that, though, to add on to that, right? And I read a lot of articles. I read a lot of stuff online. And in the state and local governments, you really do have people that are taking over, and sometimes at the state level, but at local levels, right? Uh, 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 school, not school board. The school board stuff is just good old raucous local American politics. That's just fine. Or yeah. Uh, so, but I'm talking about like these uh, local election things and these state legislatures who are going to be able to overturn election. Now that'll be fought, right? And if it happens in white rural areas, they're all voting for Trump anyway. It might cause some ruckus in a primary, but they're not going to care. What happens in a purple district that happens to have a lot of people of color and a lot of it? And all of a sudden, these laws, which, by the way, all, a lot of the laws that they're so far. And again, let me let me not be I'm not the alarmist, but bear with me for a second, is that, you know, a, a lot of these laws that, that were passed for the pandemic and they want to roll back. New York State's one of the worst to get on the ballot as a candidate or to try to vote. You got to register way ahead. There's no automatic. It's one of the worst. You know, one of the worst in the country in terms of trying to register and vote conveniently. So all this stuff about these laws, most of the laws that you read about are not good. I want more mail in and all that stuff, but it's it's not going to prevent people from being able to vote. What's going to happen is that it's the afters of vote. And these people know that they know that their efforts didn't work before because more it just caused more advertisement for the fact and more people got turned out and more motivation on the ground. That's why they won Georgia, for instance, in both Senate seats, et cetera. And so, but so when it happens in a purple area where after the vote and it gets taken away from a from a from a Democrat or a person of color, and it's gonna, that's when the shit's going to hit the fan, you see. And that's when the people are going to come out with their arms to defend. And it, and again, like any of these things, and I'll go back. I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with Chris Hedges when he talks about Yugoslavia and he sees it happening like the frog in a gradually warming pot. It doesn't explode. It's quiet before the storm. 
like a thunderstorm that comes in when it's bright and sunny and then whoosh. That's how it happens. The storm gathers, you know, for a little bit. And he says it's a bunch of people with a bunch of arms who are posing like, you know, January 6th or these things at the state capitals and surrounding the capital. But OK. OK, but so it's all it's all that kind of stuff. It's all that theater stuff. That's what was happening in the former Yugoslavia. Then uh, one day, uh, all right, uh, okay, all right, like World War One, the shit hit the fan when there was there was just the wrong person at the wrong time got killed by the wrong other person, and you had a bloodbath over there. And that's what we're on the verge of. So I mean, again, all right, I, a long, but well, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, yeah, we got the the gist of uh, what you're saying. You know, I, I just to refresh my memory as you were speaking, I googled some of the coverage of January sixth, and of course, what was done. <laughs> was that was reminiscent of what happened done throughout the preceding years of Trump's term, which is that there was this kind of full bore attempt to, to detect any kind of iconography that they could associate with, if not neo-Nazism, uh, white nationalism, and then use that to paint the entire crowd as neo-Nazi or neo-Nazi enabling or something along those lines. So, for example, there was one guy who was photographed at January 6th wearing, which what admittedly is a ridiculous and, uh, you know, stupid and uh, offensive shirt, um, which read uh, Camp Auschwitz, um, and, I mean, the guy just looks like a loon. And, you know, there was a time in the pre-Trump era when there would it would just be kind of understood that every so often a loon like that who would wear a shirt like that would just appear somewhere. And it wasn't taken to be this sort of, like, existential threat. Um, but because this one dope showed up at January 6th wearing this shirt, it was, you know, a frenzy, and he was depicted as somehow representative of the wider crowd. Um, and totally you know, do I do it? Do I do, again? I think that's a ridiculous shirt to wear. Uh, but just contrast the eagerness with which that one guy was portrayed as representative of the ideology of anybody who showed up on January 6th. And by the way, that guy was arrested and charged with, um, I'm not sure the exact offense. And the uh, utter reluctance now to do the same with a foreign military regiment that the U.S. just happens to be, if not directly arming, has no mechanism to monitor whether the arms that it's shipping are uh, into Ukraine are going to potentially eventually uh, Azov. Um, yeah. It's it, 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 it make it makes no sense w- except with reference to the narrative incentives that prevailed around January sixth and the ones that prevail now. Um, and yeah, so that's yeah. that's really that's that's why I've um, tried to highlight this subject um but i mean uh, more broadly yeah i mean we're we're in a tinderbox scenario potentially where 
Um, and I think people should brush up on their history of World War One um, and how it was how it was in, uh, in, initiated. I mean, uh, Henry Kissinger, um, for all uh, my criticisms of the of, of him, um, actually said something that I think was maybe a bit opaque, but still somewhat uh, portentous. Um, a few weeks ago when he appeared at this public uh, discussion forum hosted by the Financial Times, and I think I might have referenced this on a call-in recently, but nonetheless, he said that he's actually been you know, reflecting on the beginning of World War I because he said that you know, one of the reasons why it was launched was not because any individual country was hell-bent on initiating a global war, but because the momentum of like their military technology and the kind of wider kind of alliance structure um, uh, led them ineluctably into the war to the point that it almost didn't matter if any one individual actor wanted to per se uh, to get to to launch the conflict. Um, and he didn't. Kissinger didn't specifically. Uh, Reference that as a parallel to the current situation, but it was kind of implicit. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's clearly the, the situation. And it's being, I think, um, fueled in part by this whole bizarre narrative distortion that is on display right now in the U.S. where you can't even plainly call a group that had been freely labeled neo-Nazi prior to 2022, uh, the that, that, that term anymore because it's a violation against the, uh, the ascendant orthodoxies. Um, and so it, it, that contributes to the, that sort of just momentum that is continuing to build. All right. Uh, thanks, Lance. Going to go to uh, Anthony. Hey, good evening. What's up? Uh, hey, how are I, you? I had a funny, very good, very good. I had a funny um, thing I noticed about, uh, you know, Roe kind of, he got kind of asked about this in a couple different formats, uh, actually, like over the course of like two or three days, you know, on the Brianna Joy Gray show, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh. I, actually, I hadn't hadn't seen it, so I'm, I'm curious to what for you to report what what he uh, what he said. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, so just to preface, you know, he has these old 2019 tweets. Oh, the U.S. is complicit in rehab rehab. Right. Nazis. 2018, I think, because the 2018 budget was the legislation that he successfully got a provision added to to uh, prohibit arms or training. Uh, for the Azov Battalion, and he supplemented that with a whole variety of other initiatives, including a letter that, I, as I mentioned earlier, was signed by 60-plus, uh, or maybe it was 52 uh, members of the House, complaining about the glorification of Nazism in Ukraine, uh, which included, as an example of that, the integration of the uh, Azov Battalion into the command structure of the Ukraine military. But anyway, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, okay, so uh, first, uh, over the course of two, three days, this is, mind you, on Brianna Joy Grace, he said, uh, he basically amounted to saying, you know, they they amount to a very small percentage of their military, if you if you would call it that. But he seemed to admit that they were, like, actually in the military or the National Guard or whatever it is. And 
you know, said something about Russia's imperialist, which I think that's a joke. But then the very next day, you know, uh, kind of goes on Tom Hartman's show like so many every week. And the very next day I uh, called in to ask him about it. But someone did before me, too. And he, he told that person when he was on a more comfortable show, he said, no, they're not in the military. Uh, they're, you know. But I, uh, so I hadn't realized that, you know, he made that contradiction. Well, wait, wait. He, he said that Azov was not in the military of Ukraine. Yeah, on the Tom Hartman show, like a day or two after he was on Joy Gray's. And then I asked him a question that later that episode on the shitty Tom Hartman. And he says, oh, you know, it's messy. That's basically what he might be saying. It's messy. And, uh, you know, we can't. You know, Russia's imperialism. So it's funny. He's given like three different answers in the course of 48 hours. Well, let me just read to you an excerpt from this letter that he organized. I mean, I don't have the exact quote of what he said on these shows. I should go look it up. But here's the direct quote from the letter that he organized in 2018 after the budget bill was passed that included his provision to prohibit training or weapons from going to Azov. Quote, last November, Radio Free Europe reported on the presence of torches and Nazi salutes at a 20,000-person march in honor of the 75th anniversary of the UPA, which is, you know, this um, organization that is, was affiliated with Nazis in the World War II era. Um, he goes on, the, these torchlight torch marches are closely linked to organizations such as the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, an armed group that was prohibited from receiving U.S. weapons and training by the recently signed Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2018. Rather than disband Azov, the government incorporated it into the Ukrainian National Guard overseen by the Ministry of the Interior. The group is widely known to be closely connected to, the, to Interior Minister Arsen Avakov. So that's Kana and his colleagues complaining about Azov Battalion on the very basis that had been integrated into the military. So if he's denying it now, I mean, maybe he's distinguishing the Ukrainian uh, National Guard from um, other facets of the military. I, I guess, I, I don't know if, Didn't really see it's it like yet. a distinction without a difference, at least in terms of the arms shipments, because they all, admi they admit that there's no provision any longer to monitor whether these weapons shipments can end up in the hands of Azov. And there have, there have been, you know, unconfirmed reports that Azov fighters have gotten U.S. Uh, weapons. So I don't know what exactly he said on these shows, um, but all you got to do is contrast it with what he said four years ago, and you'll find some inconsistencies. You know, I, if, and he, he repeated this point that you'll hear often on social media about how, you know, how irrational are you for focusing on this one battalion that's such a small part of the military? Um, so they'll say, it's only, oh, it's like 1% or whatever. Oh, well, okay, I don't know how many members of the Azov battalion there are. Um, I've seen estimates vary, and I don't know how anybody would confirm that right now, given the distortions of the uh, information kind of ecosystem uh, well, that's providing us with, with updates from Ukraine. But if they're so irrelevant, if they're so inconsequential, 
why are they in the midst of this international PR tour? Why are their representatives being um, touted on Western media uh, and being interviewed? And um, why is it that the events in Mariupol have been such a huge focus of the war coverage overall? It's, it seems like if they're insignificant, they sure have gotten a uh, radically disproportionate share, not of the negative coverage necessarily, but of the positive coverage. Um, so that's a contradiction that I would love to see uh, Rokana address. And you know, if they were so, if they're so insignificant, why was he so focused on them in 2018, and 2019, and 2020? Um, was he mistaken then? I don't know. Well, you know what's funny is the think of uh, the squad, and I'm, I'm think they only time they probably ever even paid attention to this was during the one of the Trump impeachments, and you know. But after what I've seen with the people being tied to poles and painted green and the, you know, different uh, African students at the border, I think the whole country's got a problem. But that's just me. Well, yeah, I mean, I've seen that stuff. Uh, You know, I I think um, people who complain about the exaggeration of the influence of Azov are not totally wrongheaded when they cite that Putin and uh, Russian officials have sort of used this denazification uh, talking point to kind of encompass the whole of the country. And I think that's probably <laughs> way uh, exaggerated. Although, uh, uh, I mean, Inferences can be made by the intensity with, with, with which Azov is being valorized right now. And it's not even just within Ukraine. It's with, within the so-called West as well. Um, but, you know, read this letter. I mean, I would recommend reading this letter from 2018 where there's paragraphs and paragraphs devoted to, uh, again – how troubled these largely democratic members of Congress were that um, the Ukraine government was engaging in quote, Nazi glorification. Um, but you know, apparently that's all now memory hold. Um, all right, Anthony. Yeah. I'm going to look up what uh, Rokana had to say on those shows. Uh, Phil, you are up final caller. Phil, are you there? Um, you have to unmute if you're not familiar, which is in the bottom right-hand corner of the app. Going once, going twice, and Phil cannot be heard. All right. I uh, got you now. Okay, got you. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> right in the nick of time. Yeah, just trying to figure this damn thing out. Uh, yeah, I was I was going to comment. Uh, I, I mean, it's extraordinary the, uh, the the gaslighting that that's gone on. And for an old timer like me, is uh, uh, I mean, it was common knowledge. <laughs> it seemed to me what the uh, perspective of the uh, ultra nationalist uh, element in Ukraine, and it's been there for years. It's not just Ukraine, whether it's Serbia, Croatia, part of Poland, 
Uh, my mother's Romanian and also Ukrainian. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that's endemic to, to a place that has not had, has been trying to figure out its borders for a thousand years. It seems to me, but the, the fascinating thing to me, what I, I was going to ask you to comment on was the extraordinary uh, way this has been uh, uh, shaped to the extent that, I mean, to, as you pointed out, to even question this, you get savaged <laughs> at every level. I mean, I can remember, I think it was March 30th, maybe I walked to, uh, I went to the gas station and uh, upon checking out, I was given, I was asked if I'd like to contribute to Ukraine. Are you serious? I'm in Gary, Indiana. <laughs> okay. I love what anecdotes the, like this. I love anecdotes like about? this. I want to, I want to collect them and sort of memorialize them. Okay. So you're saying at the end of March at a gas station in Gary, Indiana. So when, like when you're saying, you mean when you put your credit card into the reader, it pops up with an option asking you to, to, to give money to Ukraine? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's literally a gas stop. I, I, I live in Gary. You know, I mean, are you serious? <laughs> That's uh, hilarious. Uh, you know, but, but so you've got this incredible corporate pitch that, that quite frankly, I haven't seen anything like this. And I, and I emigrated here in what, 1960, 59, 60, which is the tail end of the, uh, uh, you know, the, of the Red Scare kind of. <laughs> Uh, anti-communist thing, uh, but, but but there were differences. I mean, you could you'd look around and there were contrarian views, <laughs> even with it seemed to me at the time. And maybe I'm misremembering that, but uh, now it, it's just. Uh, I mean, what happened to the peace movement? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, speaking of, I've worked in Chicago most of my life. It has gone, you know, I look at my social media, you know, Facebook, whatever, and it's like silent. The silence is deafening. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, anyway, you, well, you could, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, the Gary, I love the Gary, Indiana anecdote because when, I, when I've been in, when the war first started, as you might know, I uh, quickly thereafter went to Poland and did some reporting there, and then I went to Belgium, and then I went to uh, England for sort of semi yeah, for uh, partially for personal reasons, partly for journalistic reasons, and then I also took a trip to France. And in each country, I was noticing these examples that are very similar, where in these most sort of like incongruous settings, there would be appeals for Ukraine. So you'd go into a Sainsbury's uh, grocery store or uh, <laughs> sort of like a um, uh, mar- mini market in London. And yeah, at the checkout line, it would automatically be propositioned to you to, to give money to Ukraine. In Poland, in fact, this is, I think this is the most, this is when I first saw something like this that was really striking. When you go to the ATM just to withdraw money, the ATM, like before you can even get to your account and make the withdrawal, the ATM flashes you with a give to Ukraine. So you can make an automatic withdrawal to Ukraine. It's like automate, automate. All you have to do is press yes. Um, and so, yeah, there's like an inc- there's incredible corporate uniformity even t- t- today. I mean, so we're now at reaching the we're nearing the three month mark. And since February, since since uh, the war was launched, on my my personal bank, 
that I happen to you know go to to manage my account or whatever, TD Bank. If you log onto the website or the app, and I just went on now just to confirm that it's still there, you get this big blaring notification about how they're responding to Ukraine and helping Ukraine. Um, you know, the airline that I tend to use, uh, United, was sending out blasts um, about what it's doing for Ukraine. It's just it's it's a really an incredible display of corporate uniformity, but because. Again, most of the media and even the activist class and the political class, because they don't view anything about this as debatable, um, they wouldn't even find any of these examples of corporate uniformity as curious or even worth commenting on. It's like how a fish doesn't notice water. Um, and, and, and speaking of – and just uh, – just, uh, Speaking of George W. Bush, which I you know <laughs> devoted some of my uh, opening uh, soliloquy to, you know, the thing with Iraq was, and I think I've drawn this comparison in the past. The thing with Iraq was, you know, although obviously the pro-war side prevailed in the sense that the invasion was launched, you had some of the biggest protests ever that yes. happened in two thousand three. Yes. I mean, even the the, yeah. the protests in London in two thousand three is still the biggest protest ever to have taken place. In London, around Iraq, um, and that's all just totally gone. I mean, when I was in London recently, I went to one, uh, a uh, meeting of the Stop the War Coalition, which is the group that Jeremy Corbyn is the co-chair of. Um, uh, you know, and was very prominent during the Iraq War period, um, and. I went to one of these meetings that was called specifically in relation to Ukraine, right? And to talk about the UK policy response in particular. And I went there. This is North London. It was actually in Corbyn's constituency. So like a relatively more left-wing area, right? Um, And it was about, you know, maybe 20 people, all of the the vast majority of whom, I would say probably 85 to 90% of whom were over the age of 50, sitting around, and having a somewhat kind of, uh, you know, muted discussion around Ukraine. And it was, it was an interesting contrast, right? It was like a striking contrast because the grave implications of what was happening, happening in Ukraine were made abundantly clear by everyone who spoke, meaning they were worried about World War III. Um, they were worried about the future of Europe and the remilitarization of Europe, including Germany. Um, how this was going to be used to justify all kinds of wasteful expenditures, and on and on and on. Um, and and you, you contrast that with the relatively meager showing of people attending this meeting, and it tells you that, yeah, there's something that's just not registering. And I think a lot of that must have to do with this overwhelming propaganda um, offensive. And I am going to call it that because... It is. In, also in London, and I, when I, as I've mentioned, it was in a Substack article... You know, one day I'm in London Bridge train station, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating this story again. So people might have already heard it, but I think it's worth emphasizing. I'm in London Bridge train station, which is, you know, in central London. And to advertise in London Bridge train station has got to be some of those expensive advertising real estate in the world. And the entire train station was covered with the same blue and yellow digital ad about stand with Ukraine. And it was produced by the Ukrainian government. Um, and it's just blanketing the train station. 
Um, so I'm not saying that ad campaign on its own would necessarily have a decisive impact, but combined with everything else, um, yeah, I mean, it's had it's been enormously successful in totally neutering any any remnants of an anti-war uh, movement. And so, yeah, that's why it's worse. It's 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 exponentially worse than Iraq. I mean, in Iraq, um, you know, you had uh, close to a third of the Senate. Uh, voting right. against the uh, the authorization for use of military force, not Joe Biden, not Hillary Clinton, but you know so, uh, some senators. Now, I mean, could you imagine that today? No. Well, I'm going to leave you with, with this. The other, it's insidious, and, and if you watch it, uh, and if you start digging around, as obviously you have, and I'm sure all the people on this call have, you can actually get information. You have to go to Telesur. Or, strange, strange uh, telegram channels to actually find out, you know, get a sense of what's going on. Uh, but you, you saw an example of it over the last three days. It took them three days to use what is apparently on style sheets all over the country, the new S word, which is yeah, surrender. Surrender. Yeah. I mean, you can't say that. Yeah, I was surprised, actually, that I, I, the New York Times can't, today can't actually... Say, Used it. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I'm just, I was surprised. Sorry to interrupt, but I was surprised today when I read the New York Times. They actually used the, the term mass surrender to describe what Finally. happened at Avastol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took, took, took them three, three days to do it. Uh, four days ago, mainstream channel, I think CNN, MSNBC, et cetera, and everything, were still interviewing the mayor of Mariupol. Right. Who hadn't been there in a month and a half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just. It was insane. Anyway, uh, great, great call. Interesting. Thank you. I'll hang. All right. Uh, thanks, Phil. And uh, Stephen, you're up. Hey, uh, I might need to be quiet here. Uh, I have a sleeping child. Um, so that said, I think one of the reasons the anti-war left is so weak right now um, is because of all of these smear pieces on media. Everyone from like the Daily Beast to the New York Times has been smearing uh, anti-war journalists. And then, of course, we also have uh, hit pieces on individual citizens as well. So I, I had a proposal, actually, uh, for fighting back, which is essentially a legal fund uh, lottery. Uh, so obviously there are laws with the sanctions and whatnot against, you know, active financing by anyone entangled with Russia. You know, that, that's actually a felony to take uh, funding uh, from groups that are there. And th th that's pretty obvious to anyone who, you know, should be a journalist or anything like that. Uh, but there are also civil protections against libel and slander um, and some uh, recourse through the court. So it would be interesting if basically people would just bid right on uh, the success of that legal fund and collect damages on the other side. Uh, and you could have kind of a self-perpetuating thing uh, where essentially when people do slander and commit libel, um, you could essentially have a legal fund that would self-regenerate and just roll through that and create kind of a disincentive for people for just these, this outright, you know, <laughs> obnoxious lying that they're doing on people's reputations. Yeah, well, I mean, as I'm sure you know, the standards for proving libel are very high in the U.S. to the point that it's almost not really worth pursuing in almost all cases unless you can be 
confident, and this is unusual if you have this confidence that you can prove, you know, actual malice in that the falsity of the claim that was leveled against you was known by the author of the claim, and you know, out of malice they chose to falsely impugn you. Um, you know, it's uh, sort of paradoxical because, you know, although I guess tentatively I would maybe partially agree about the in principle that being a decent idea, especially as a journalist, and I know, at least speaking for myself, I know that there would be trade-offs for me to be embroiled in something like that where, like, I'm known as – I'm going to be known as litigious. I'm going to be known as somebody who can't take criticism and is using, you know, legal, you know, lawfare to exact vengeance upon my enemies or something like that. Um, and so there are a lot of downsides potentially to pursuing that course of action. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, you're kind of given a free pass that. And, all, and also, and, and, uh, I understand sorry, that. Yeah. And also, you know, I'm probably an example of somebody who has faced these kinds of allegations. Um, the most significant of which, or the most glaring of which, was uh, one that I've mentioned before, which is when I was on uh, I was on Tucker Carlson's show in, in March, and because I used the phrase "proxy war," uh, Media Matters um, wrote a uh, you know like a bulletin accusing me of peddling Russian talking points. Um, and this was like part of their overarching charge that you know somehow Tucker Carlson was complicit in propagating Russian disinformation or whatever. Um, and you know, although it's not obviously not true that I was propagating a Russian talking point, and I didn't even get the term proxy war f- from Russia. Um, in fact, Leon Panetta, who was the Defense Secretary and CIA Director under Obama, used it on a. TV appearance days before I did, which is where I first heard it used by anyone of stature. Um, at least, you know, who's a former governor serving or former government official. Um, but that all said, I mean, what would be my recourse? Um, I can't prove that it was actual malice. It was just sort of like a, misre- a distortion or a misrepresentation of me that, uh, you know, you kind of just have to combat by pointing out the fallacy of it more so than I think taking legal yeah. action. So th- th- that's a fair point. And, you know, there is the Streisand effect, you know, is, is there's a political cost to doing that, which you're kind of alluding to there. Um, but I mean, a, a legal fund may not have those same constraints, right? If it's a lottery system, there, there's a number of people imbued, uh, for you know taking money from the wrong parties or having corrupt incentives here and there and um yeah i don't know it was a thought again a proposal i think that that would be successful i'd certainly donate money to it towards it but i i don't know yep that's it for me yeah yeah i I mean i i I sort of do also worry about you know potentially chilling speech because even if you're talking about falsely being falsely impugned for having taken money from russia i mean i get that all the time it's mostly just random people on the internet um sometimes somebody who have a little bit more prominence will kind of just insinuate it um but you know i could see the argument you know if it were theoretically to go to court being that this is just a flourish of heated political rhetoric to kind of accuse someone of being in the pay of Russia, sort of like meant, I don't know, metaphorically or something. So I don't know. Um, Yeah, I mean, I take your point, but I think it's almost, the the logistical and practical robots are almost inevitable and kind of leads me to kind of assume that it wouldn't be worth it. 
But, you know, maybe something to look into. All right. Uh, thanks, Stephen. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in today or tonight. A uh, bit of a later time than normal. I'm going to be back tomorrow with uh, Richard Hadania, 8 p.m. Eastern time. And so we'll uh, resume then. All right. Take care.